I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. <clears throat> o righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of God. Thanks, Jody. Um, in my life, I, uh, I've played just a, uh, a single season of, uh, of Little League Baseball, just one season, nine-year-old prep. And uh, the reason I only played one season is because I was uh, a fairly perceptive child and uh, the time that I spent on the bench led me to perceive that I was horrible at baseball. So one season was enough, but uh, the one season that I did play, um, we had practices a couple days a week, and because those practices cut pretty close to uh, quitting time at, at work, uh, it was understandable that our coaches would sometimes be running a few minutes behind. They'd be late, and so uh, in their absence, what would happen is uh, some of the fathers of the players would uh, kind of jump in and start hitting ground balls to the kids to kind of get us warmed up, get practice started on time. And I remember one evening practice where this had happened. I showed up, coaches weren't there yet, and so I took my spot in the outfield next to uh, a kid named Brett. And we watched together as someone's dad hit and, and threw balls to, uh, to the kids to, uh, to kill the time until the coaches got there. And he was getting pretty into it. Uh, he was getting a little more coachy than I thought he should have been, uh, starting to bark at the kids a little bit and getting a little bit critical when the kids would miss the ground balls. I mean, we're like nine years old. Um, and so this was upsetting to me. And so I turned to Brett and I said, who is this guy? Like, who does he think he is? He seems uh, a little bit mean. To which Brett replied, that's my dad. Um, to which I replied, well, he seems confident in what he's doing. I, I did not know what else to say. It was a really bad attempt at trying to, to redeem the situation. So I had to hop away on one leg because my other foot was still stuck in my mouth. Um, but here's the point. I, I did not know that man. I did not know he was Brett's father. Uh, had I known who he was, had I been able to recognize him, maybe uh, I could have avoided a, a, an embarrassing situation. And the problem being addressed in our passage in John 17 today is, is similar. We, um, we've been in the midst of this prayer. Jesus is praying in chapter 17, and he's making all kinds of uh, incredible requests on behalf of his people. And today he asks for a few more things, but really one big main thing. And that is for God's people to be one. 
to be unified. And he asks for it uh, several times, but, but the reason he asks for that unity, the problem that he's addressing by asking for the unity, which he also repeats multiple times, is that the world does not know who he is. And because of who Jesus claimed to be, this is a problem. He says that he's the one sent from the Father. These are things he said throughout, throughout uh, John. He, he's also said that he's the one who's come from the Father's side. He says that uh, he's the agent through whom God created all things. He says the Father is in him and he is in the Father. He's the God-man who came to be amongst us. But we, the world, we look at him and we say, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? The world does not recognize its creator. And Jesus seems to think that the unity of his people should be instrumental in changing that. And so we want to consider what this unity consists of today because uh, hopefully we agree it's not just unity for unity's sake, right? It's not that thin. It's not that shallow. So we're going to consider what this unity consists of and then why that might be uh, compelling enough to remove blinders from the eyes of people who can't yet identify Jesus. And hopefully we will genuinely agree uh, with Jesus' uh, point today that the church's unity uh, around Jesus helps the world know Jesus. The church's unity around Jesus helps the world know Jesus. Uh, so let's look at the text here for a few minutes. It, um, it begins with a shift. And it's a shift in, uh, in our direction. And here's what I mean by that. He says in verse 20, if you look, I do not ask for these only. Um, these meaning those present with him at that time. So thus far through uh, chapter 17, he's been praying for the disciples that were there uh, with him on site, so to speak. But here's the shift. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So this is a different set of people being prayed for. Uh, it's a type of people that don't exist as of yet when he prays this. They're, they're a future people who will be brought to faith in Jesus by the hearing or uh, the reading of the, uh, those first disciples' testimony. In other words, it's us, right? He's asking the Father on our behalf. And so if you're sitting here today as a uh, someone who's been welcomed into Jesus' family, you sit here as an answer to this very prayer. I mean, the, the testimony of those first disciples, it was passed down, written down, and it's gone from person to person until it found its way to you. So Jesus was, he was mindful of us even back then. And as he's mindful of us and praying for us, you notice he starts to get a little bit uh, repetitive. Several, several parts of this passage, you may have noticed, sound much the same, and, and that's okay, right? It doesn't mean uh, John was a clumsy writer or Jesus was a careless speaker. It means they're, they're trying to make a point. Um, 
as uh, someone who frequently gets a little spacey and, and lost in, in anxious thoughts, my wife is forced to use this communication tactic. Um, you know, if she's making a, an important point to me, she will make a habit of circling back around to it in conversation. And she knows it's sunk in when I say, didn't you just say that? She says, yes, yes, I did. This is the cross I bear, Brandon. Same thing's happening here, right? Just look at verse 21, and I, I think we've got a slide for this. Um, you'll see in verse 21 that first there's this request. And the request is that they may all be one. That they, everyone who will believe, may all be one. And then you have this analogy that compares this oneness to Jesus' unity with the Father. He says, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. And then you have the result of the request. So that the world may believe you have sent me. Okay, that's the structure of what Jesus is asking. But then you're hit with the same thing again in verses 22 and 23. Jesus says he's, he's given his people something, his, his glory. And then the same request comes up, twice even. Uh, in verse 22, that they may be one. And in verse 23, that they may be perfectly one. And then you have the same analogy after that. Even as we are one. Even as we, Father and Son, are one. And then finally, you have the same result. That the world may know that you have sent me. So the, the dead horse is being beaten here, to put it crassly, right? But this should serve to show us how important it is to Jesus that his people receive this gift of unity from the Father. And he wants it so badly for us. He's calling out for it over and over again to make his people one. So what kind of unity? What kind of oneness is this? Why does Jesus want it so badly for us? You know, our Father, He gives us good gifts, and so we want to know more about this unity so that we can pursue it and receive this gift. And I think at least, you know, from what's contained in these verses, right, this is just one passage, there are at least three things we can see that make up this kind of unity. And the, the third one's actually in two parts, so it's, it's actually four things. Um, so first, the unity that Jesus desires for us, it's founded upon something. And that thing is the apostolic message of the gospel. It's founded upon the apostolic message of the gospel. There's a, a very important qualifier we can't miss um, that describes this group of future believers that Jesus uh, is praying for. He describes them as those who will believe in me through their word. Okay, their meaning his disciples who would later be called apostles and word meaning the things that they were saying about Jesus, the things that they were preaching about the person of Jesus. So there's this content to their faith. There were uh, specific things the disciples would say to people about Jesus and then those people would believe those specific things. They weren't just believing whatever they wanted to about Jesus. They were believing the apostolic message about Jesus, what the apostles were saying. In other words, 
there is an authoritative teaching about Jesus that unites all of Jesus' people. And we see it referred to throughout the New Testament. Uh, In Acts 2, uh, the early church was characterized by being devoted to what? The apostles' teaching. Um, On multiple occasions, when writing to Timothy, the apostle Paul tells him to stick to the sound words that he's heard and to guard the deposit that's been entrusted to him. So there was a message deposited with Timothy, and it was something to be guarded, to be protected, preserved. We even see uh, Paul refer to some of the content of this uh, deposit in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So there's this specific apostolic message being passed down, and we get to see it in its fullness in our laps this morning in the Scriptures. It's right there. The deposit is right there. For us to believe and have life in Christ, these are the things to which we must hold, right? Especially especially those things in Scripture that are abundantly clear. Not just because they're, they're the right answers, right? But because that's the only way we know our Savior. And I think that this confronts us a little bit. Um, because saying that there are specific things the gospel message is, necessarily implies there are specific things it is not. So then, if the way that we or others conceive of God goes against that apostolic message, it means we don't know God, right? That, that is, that's confronting. This, this violates our perceived uh, autonomy, It violates uh, our culture that values inclusivity at all costs. I heard this difficulty expressed in a song this past week um, from Brittany Howard. She's she's the lead singer of uh, a band called Alabama Shakes, uh, super talented. um, But she just came out with her own album, and she's got a song on, on that album called He Loves Me. She talks about God a little bit. She says... He loves me when I do what I want. He loves me. He doesn't judge me. He loves me. Somebodiness does not come from your opinion of God. And if you listen to the whole song, it's clear the point that she's trying to make is that it does not matter what you believe about God. You can you know, believe and do whatever you want. God still approves. And I... I think she's just giving voice to what a lot of people in our culture and probably some of us in this room believe. But I think if, if you look closely at this, you'll see that instead of promoting unity and togetherness, that type of, of inclusivity at all costs belief, it removes the possibility of experiencing unity at all. 
Because if anything goes, you actually believe in nothing. And unity around nothing is what? It's nothing. Jesus wants us to unify around his character, around his goodness, around all that he is. And so the first part of nurturing this unity that Jesus wants for us is celebrating the apostolic message of the gospel. Let me say that again. As opposed to merely declaring what the message is, we need to celebrate the apostolic message of the gospel. That is how we will preserve it. That's how we will guard it. And and the quickest way to kill this unity that Jesus desires for us is to ditch the apostolic message or dilute it somehow. So our unity has to be founded upon the apostolic message of the gospel. The second thing uh, about this unity is that it images something. It images something. And that thing is God himself. Um, I mentioned earlier that Jesus uses this analogy of the Father being in the Son and the Son being in the Father to describe uh, the type of unity that we should seek to have with other Christians. And there's, there's good reason for that. It's because God has designed Christian community to reflect something of Him. Um, as Christians, we're, we're not just new creations, right? We're new creations in Christ Jesus. As Christians, we are over time being conformed to His image. And so it follows that if we're being conformed to the image of this being who's lived in perfect God-centered community for all of eternity, then we're going to start looking something like him. And think about how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together. None of them has their own agenda, do they? Jesus said this a lot during his years on earth, I can do nothing apart from my Father. I only do what I see my Father doing. He's not a rogue agent disconnectedly operating from the Father. Here's another thing. Everything that they conceive of and do together brings glory to the other. You ever notice how there's no jockeying for position amongst the persons of the Trinity? Like there's... There's no self-promotion happening that belittles the other persons of the Trinity. What about this? All their interactions are governed by love. And whatever they're doing, they're committed to the good of the other. Here's another thing. All their ways toward each other are holy. Psalm 92.15, there's no unrighteousness in him. So their unity is holy. Fifth, their their togetherness overflows into creative action. Out of their fellowship together, good things are produced. Good things are produced from their good communion with each other, right? This, This is the God that our unity is supposed to image. So if fractures in unity are what mostly characterize us, What does that say 
Who does that image? It, it doesn't image God. One example uh, I was thinking of for, for how fractures and unity sometimes play out is through the idolatry of preference. The idolatry of preference. Um, each of us, we're, we're created uniquely in the image of God. Uh, we've got personalities. We each have a our particular story that has shaped us. We're, we're part of a certain culture. We're part of a certain era in history. And so we all have thoughts on how the ideal life should be lived, right? And, and the ideal parenting method, the ideal wardrobe, the ideal uh, order of Sunday gatherings, the ideal music for Sunday gatherings, the ideal way of working out mission to our neighbors, the ideal way of communicating. We have these preferences, right? But you know what we love to do with our preferences? We love to moralize our preferences and then cast judgment on everyone else's. And if we're not careful, what can happen is we start talking about our preferences in the same way that we talk about things like the deity of Christ. Our, our preferences start to become core convictions, and then we get angry when our preferences run into the brick wall of somebody else's. I remember um, when I first became a Christian, I... Uh, I came home from college for a holiday, and a couple of our cousins were in town, and they, they spent the night, and I was excited about everything I was learning. Um, and at some point, I told them all about my, my salvation experience and my church and how I felt that the church I was a part of did services the right way. And when my cousin implied that he appreciated a different approach to Sunday gatherings, I tore into him. I let him have it. I said things like, uh, if I remember correctly, how can the spirit move in a setting like that? There's no way God likes a service like that. It was awful. And I looked on him with disapproval. I mean, what, what was I thinking there? That God favored my college student-influenced, suburban, middle-class, southern, predominantly white way of doing services over my cousin's preference? If we can put to death our idolatry of preference and stop majoring on the minors, we could be gloriously freed to celebrate the things that matter together. Our unity is meant to image the triune God. The third thing about this unity is that it's fueled by something. It's fueled by something. Um, and remember I said it's actually two things. So it's fueled by two things. It's fueled by glory and love. Let's talk about uh, glory first. So uh, glory is one of those words, it's a little bit hard to pin down. Um, we use it a lot, but, but sometimes we use it without understanding what it is. And part of that is because um, depending on where you read it in the scriptures, it can be nuanced in, in different ways. Uh, in some places, it's used to mean something like honor or esteem. 
Um, in other places, it has this, uh, this tie with like radiance and light. Um, in other places, it's, it's a revelatory event, uh, an instance in which God's uh, godness is on display, where he's revealed, uh, he's uncovered. And John is a, a huge fan of this word, glory. He, in fact, in this chapter alone, uh, he refers to it eight, eight times. Um, and I think he's using glory in this instance in the last way that I mentioned, a, a revelatory event. He says in verse 22, first of all, that this glory uh, was given to him by the Father. It was given to him. So this unveiling of God's godness, it was something given to Jesus. Again, beating the drum that he has nothing apart from the Father, right? And it was given to him that he might then do something with it. And according to Jesus, that something was to then give it to his disciples. That's Jesus' summary of his earthly ministry. If, if he were to sum it up, he'd say, the Father gave me this glory... He revealed himself in me, and I have passed along that glory. I've passed along that revelation of who God is to my people. In other words, he displayed, he made known, he uncovered the Father for us. And this was uh, what he was doing in his birth, uh, his life, miracles, the, the words that he spoke, in his righteous actions, his death, his resurrection. That's what he was doing. And that glory that he's given to us fuels our unity. If you continue with verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. Now, why, why does glory result in unity? Why does an unveiling of who God is in the person of Jesus result in Jesus' people becoming one? Well, I think... It has something to do with fireworks. Uh, hear me out. Um, in our neighborhood, people adore setting off fireworks uh, on certain holidays. Uh, sometimes even weeks after the holiday has gone by at 2 o'clock in the morning. And you know, if the, if the display of those explosions in the sky is big enough, then our family will walk out onto our front porch and we'll watch it. And as we're out there watching them, some of our neighbors start to come out as well. And before you know it, everyone in the neighborhood is outside watching those fireworks, right? And we're all holding our ears when the big ones go off, and we're saying, wow, and then when they cover the sky over our house, we're all drawn to the display in admiration. I think that's the effect of glory on unity. I mean, Jesus came to put God on display, to, to reveal his character to us and to make known his desires for humans. He came to put on display God's holiness and his power and his, his gentility and his nearness and all those things, right? And his people are drawn together to the display in admiration. Right? We're looking at each other as we behold Jesus, and we're saying, are you seeing the things that I'm seeing? Can you believe this is what God is like? Glory fuels unity, and so does love, specifically the love of the Father. 
Um, love is, is all over this passage. Uh, in verse 23, Jesus says that not only will our unity show the world that he is sent from the Father, it'll also show the world that Jesus' people are loved. In fact, that they're loved by the Father just as the Son is loved by the Father. In verse 24, Jesus says that the glory he was given by the Father was given to him because the Father loved him. And finally, in verse 26, he says, I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So behind everything that's going on in the sending of the Son to us is the Father's love. It's what's fueling everything. He loves His Son. Therefore, He loves the people of the Son. He loves us as He loves the Son. Now, I think that, you know, that fuels unity in a number of different ways, but here's one big way I was thinking about. If we've been loved perfectly by the Father, if we've been loved perfectly by the Father, it frees us to stop seeking out perfect love from each other, doesn't it? If we're loved perfectly by the Father, it frees us to stop seeking out perfect love from each other. You know, if if we look to one another for a perfect love that is meant to only come to us from the Father, All it does is create discord. We become uh, embittered toward one another because community starts to become this this big nest of mutual letdown. But if the Father's perfect love frees us to stop using one another to get a love that nobody can actually deliver, that is when unity can happen. You know, one of the best ways that we can participate in building this love-fueled unity, it's by freely and frequently giving and receiving the love of God. Freely and frequently giving and receiving the love of God. Um, I'm sure some of you can, can uh, identify with this, but in the past, I've been part of a, a caustic work environment. Um, Everything about that job was unhealthy. This was, I don't know, 15 years ago or so. Um, Backbiting and division are what characterized this company. And one of the main things I remember from that experience is that the only time I ever heard from my bosses was when they thought I did something wrong. The rest of the time, it was just silence, right? No interaction, no encouragement, and so when only negative things were addressed, it made me feel like only negative things were happening, and then you start wondering, like, why are we showing up to the office today? If everything is horrible, why are we here? And I think if we're not careful, we can turn Christian community into something similar where there is no proactive effort to bless, to encourage to remind one another of the love that God has for them. There's just silence until something goes wrong or until somebody does something that you perceive is wrong. 
I mean, think, think about what kind of church culture could be fostered by doing the opposite of that. By reaching out to someone for no reason whatsoever other than to remind them that the Father loves them just as He loves His Son. This, this could take a lot of different shapes, right? You hear a song you think would, would minister to somebody, you send it along to them in a text saying, this made me think of you today, and I'm praying these things for you. You're loved. I want you to know you're loved. Someone comes into mind while you're driving home from work, so you call them. Hands-free, of course. Don't want to get in a wreck. And you say, just thought of you. Wanted to check in. I'm encouraged by your life. I see the Lord working in you in these ways. doesn't have to be anything complicated, right? You're an encouragement to me. You're loved. You notice someone um, following Jesus in a way that's largely unseen. They're just quietly, faithfully following Jesus. And you stop them right then and there when you see it and you say, I saw that. Do you know that's the Spirit working in you? I'm so thankful for that. Please keep feeding that. Thank you for doing that. These things should be the norm of Christian community, not the exception. And we could do better at receiving this as well. I mean, what, what do most of us do when we receive encouragement from other people? We downplay it, right? Uh, you're just being nice. You're just saying that. How dare we discount a brother or a sister who is indwelled by the Spirit of God coming to us in obedience to Jesus to build us up in the faith, in some notion of false humility. We should thank them and then thank the Lord that he's bringing to completion the good work that he began in us. What about, what about the simple, rhythmic, daily and weekly reminders of God's love for you? Do you dismiss those too? Kiss of a spouse, hug of a child, shared laughter with a friend, the faithfulness of a friend, unexpected gifts, your daily bread. Each breath you take as someone who does not deserve to know about Jesus, but does. A church where you hear the gospel preached week in and week out. There are a ton of weekly and daily reminders of God's love for us. And these things are ours to receive with glad hearts, right? Signs of God's love that, that fuel our unity. This is the picture of the unity that Jesus wants for us. Founded upon the apostolic message imaging our Creator, fueled by glory and love. So I want to ask to to wrap up, why is this such a compelling thing? Why is this a compelling witness to the world? Why would this serve as a proof to the world that Jesus is the sent one? That's his concern, right? That the world may know that I was sent from the Father. 
Well, I think there, there's a lot you could say about why this is compelling, but if, if I were to, to summarize it, this is what I'd say. Christian unity is so compelling because it's evidence of a collective recovery of our God-designed humanity. It's evidence of a collective recovery of our God-designed humanity. Remember, in the beginning, right, Adam and Eve, they went their own way in the garden. Fellowship with God was broken. Shame followed. And now, all of creation, the scriptures tell us, all of creation groans under a curse. Humans are disconnected from their creator, and so they are forgetting how to be human. They go their own way, like Adam and Eve. It's called sin, right? And, and we feel the effects of that sin in ourselves as individuals and in the way that we interact with the people around us. So if the world sees signs of people being reconciled to their creator, and therefore those people start understanding their God-given human dignity better, it's compelling. If they see a group of people who have been freed from sin and guilt and shame, living unhidden lives in front of each other, that's compelling. It's compelling. If they witness Christians all testifying that they have met the same Christ, if they notice Christians resembling something of God in their interactions, if they see a community of people beholding something glorious and giving and receiving love freely and frequently, that is compelling because it looks like redemption. And it points to the truth that Jesus is the one sent by the Father to make all things right again. They're, they're witnessing the new creation sprouting amongst God's people and God's people are turning back around and telling them it's because of Christ. It's because of Christ. And listen, I, I know as I say this, this talk of unity, this can be intimidating. Um, it sounds like a tall task, but, but we have to remember, right, this will be Jesus' work in us that does this. Jesus will do this in us, okay? You don't have to, to fret and worry about, you know, not having the resources within yourself to execute on this plan for unity. Jesus has purchased it with his blood, and he will give us all the grace and all the help that we need to do it to stick to the apostles' message, to image our Creator, to receive the fuel of glory and love so that our unity around Jesus 
will help the world to know Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, there are such good things you've bought for us by sending your Son to die the death that uh, we deserved, to serve the punishment that we deserved, and by raising him from the dead so that in him we can have uh, a life that's hidden in him. Lord, we pray that um, these things that we've read today in your word, we ask that they would linger in our hearts throughout the week. We ask that you would uh, help us to think about the ways that we are or are not pursuing this kind of unity. Lord, keep making the gospel message attractive to us. Let us hold fast in faith, no matter what our culture, uh, our culture's influence is. Help us to realize that we're imaging you, our creator, in the way that we interact with each other. And Lord, where, where our desires have grown cold toward you, I pray that you would give us a, a fresh understanding of your glory in your son Jesus and the way that he has revealed who you are, your thoughts toward us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.